Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, so the one, so the two. Oh, it's getting colder and colder. <laughs> From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Already minus 40, 41, 42, 43. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and crystalline shards of audio we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. Oh, this is cold. Minus 50. Radio is all about transmission and translation. It's a conduit from the mind of the producer to the imagination of the listener. We paint pictures with words and sounds. You construct a personalized replica in your head, a wash in the colors of your own experience. And today, we're going to sneak into that imagination and turn down the temperature, frost up the windows, and lace up our skates. We want to make it so cold in there that you start to shiver. If you're someplace warm right now, think of today's show as audio air conditioning. If you're already feeling a chill, bundle up, because it's about to get a lot colder. So I used to live in Minnesota, where it's cold from Halloween to Mother's Day. During this long winter in the land of 10,000 lakes, actually, there are more, everyone skates. Hockey, figure skating, or more commonly, round and round in endless circles. Me? Never. No matter how solid the ice looked, the idea of falling through was too haunting. But Phil Smith, who grew up skating on frozen lakes, didn't give it much of a thought on New Year's Eve 2005. That was his first mistake. This was uh, on New Year's Eve 2005 in West Des Moines, Iowa. And my newly pregnant wife and I were visiting her parents at their place. We had big news to share because I was three months pregnant. And I think, if I'm remembering correctly, we had just shared the news. And that day that it happened, we um, woke up and um, my dad and I decided to go to the gym. And I was going to walk around uh, the Raccoon River Park. 
Filth said, and I'll pick you guys up after you go to the gym. So this is a three-mile walk around a kind of a hand-shaped uh, water basin that's, uh, that's sort of alongside of this river. And uh, I have an hour to get around this, and I'm finding that it's taking longer to walk around the perimeter of this lake than go around the wider loop, that, which is a straight line. And on one of the fingers of this little lake, uh, the lake goes way in and then comes way back out, which is like a 500-yard walk versus a 100-yard walk straight across the finger. And I think, well, the water seems pretty good. I, I'm just going to duck across and create a little shortcut. It had been below freezing for many days before this, though it was 34 that day and the sun was shining. And um, I started walking and um, uh, the water seems really nicely frozen and I sort of skate along and I remember when I was a little kid, uh, my dad used to take me skating a lot and I remember one of the... I, I remember thinking this at the time. Uh, there was a little river that we used to skate on when it got really cold. And, and I just remember the, the feeling of exhilaration and freedom of, of skating down a river and not having boundaries. And very quickly, I realized that this is a mistake. And I hear that sound, that underwater shotgun report sound of like this echo of a shotgun that's drowning. And the, the ice is cracking very fast. So I start to turn, and as I start to turn, the ice below me gives. And I sink like a very fast elevator. Uh, and I'm down in the water. Help! Help! And I've, I've never yelled for help in my life. I was 45 and I'd never said those words and meant them. And I'm glad I didn't focus any more energy on screaming because no one was there. There was no one there to save me. So I, I sort of tried to kick myself up onto the ice ledge and it gave way very fast and dumped me into the water again. And it was, it was then that I realized I might actually uh, have some effort in front of me. And so I purposefully neutralized my thinking. Don't think about anything other than slow breath, moving forward. And that's where I started. I realized that the best technique for testing the ice was to use my arms as sledgehammers in the best way that I could to reach them sort of above my shoulders 
and smash my fist down and I found that I was smashing through a lot of ice. There is a non-ending pattern of ice breaking and not ice shelf. And I've cut through about 15 feet of ice and I'm still moving and I say to myself, I have to get to the shore in three minutes or I'm not going to be able to survive. I think if I can get within 25 feet of that beach, I should be able to touch the ground and then I'll be okay. I just have to keep kicking and smashing to try to get to that edge. I'm within my goal. I'm three minutes in and I get to within maybe 15 seconds of energy left and I can't stand and I go oh my gosh I cannot die within 15 feet of the edge of the water and I smash and it doesn't break and I smash again and it doesn't break and I go this this is it this is it and I kick and I kick and I kick and I find my chest on top of the ledge and it doesn't break and I kick and kick and kick and kick and I'm out and I and I roll and I roll and I roll I have I've I've made it literally with seconds to spare and it's and it's strangely still not over because I had 15 seconds of life left in me and I'm exhausted and I'm wet and cold. You know, from where I am, I have to walk back out to the path, so I have a mile and a half to walk to the car. I walk back and I make it to the car. It's this old gray CRV. And I drive home like nothing happened. And I get to their house. And I'm supposed to pick them up in like 15 minutes from the gym. I get into the, to the water of the shower and the water, it's like boiling water and my body can hardly take it and you could see it sort of respond and I'm shaking and I'm shaking and I, and I've, I stay in long enough to like get over the shakes of the experience. I didn't, I didn't have any, what is it called, hypothermia? I didn't have that response and then I got in these different clothes, I drove to the gym. And I remember their face when they came in the car and they looked at me like... He's not speaking, and he's dressed in an entirely different outfit than he was when he dropped us off. And I think I was very lighthearted about it. I was like, what's going on? I was like, why are you why are you in brand new clothes? And uh, he said, well, something happened. We went back the next day, and until I saw the break in the ice, and I saw where he had hacked through, you know, the fracture that you could still see, kind of, you know, the skeleton of it, that I fully comprehended how serious it was. It, it was. A, it, it ended up being a good New Year's Eve. It's like I'm. I'm in. I'm in 2006. I made it to 2006. That was a good feeling.
That was I Fell Through the Ice, produced by Dennis Funk and me, Gwen Maxi, featuring Phil Smith and Louise Lamson. Phil and Louise are both ensemble members at Looking Glass Theater in Chicago. It is freezing in here. It is so annoying. Look at how beautiful it is outside. And we're walking around in, like, sweatshirts. I really hate being cold. But some people love it, frolic in it, make their living out of doors, up north, on the ice. Say, in the Arctic. Like George Frederick Tilton, crew member on the ship The Belvedere, which made regular trips to the Arctic to trap and hunt in the late 19th century. Even though, as Tilton knew only too well, the Arctic terrain was unpredictable at best and lethal at worst. All the times he'd been to the Arctic, and the guy had been up there a bunch, he'd never seen it like that. Not so early. The usual plan was you'd pull up anchor from San Francisco in March or April, so you'd get up to Alaska by June, July at the latest. There'd still be snow and icebergs, because it was still the Arctic and it was 1897 and we hadn't screwed everything up up there yet. But whalers and traders and hunters and fishermen could get around well enough. And then they'd turn around and head back south with their pelts and whale oil before things got too crazy. Some crews would just plan on staying. They'd pack a ton of food, get as far north as they could until everything froze around them, and they'd hole up until spring. They were nuts, but they were used to that sort of thing. It was standard operating procedure for sailors and trappers and other bearded, wind-burned men who worked in the frozen parts of the world back then. And the men needed to work well together or it didn't work at all. So the captains would need to communicate and cooperate. They could be competitive about finding that secret fishing spot or the best place to hunt for whales. But if the ice farther north was unbreakable, if that Inuit village where they used to trade guns for food every year had pulled up stakes or been ravaged by disease or overrun by yetis or something, people needed to know, or people died. Because no matter how many times George Fred Tilton, 37 years old, of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, third mate on the whaling ship Belvedere, had been to the Arctic, no matter how down for the cold he was, how nonchalant he could be about living for months on end in an alien, hostile landscape, in a state of extreme hardship and deprivation. It was different every year. The wind and the ice and the swirling waters would form whole new mountain ranges and valleys and plains. Each year it would make itself anew, come up with new ways to mess with you. So that's why you arrived in the summer, before the Arctic had put its bulwarks and booby traps in place to repel the bearded invaders. But the summer of 1897 was different. They got slowed down a little bit, Tilton and the men of the Belvedere. But that wasn't really it. They left on time, mid-March, from San Francisco. They hit a storm off the Aleutians and had to spend a bit too long on shore fixing a mast and burying a crew member. But they had made it to Alaska by mid-July, which was totally reasonable any other year. But three days north of their Aleutian stopover, they hit ice, and joined a line of a dozen or so steamers and sailing ships, taking turns to break that ice and clear a channel in the Bering Sea. They broke through and headed up toward the coast of Siberia, but only found more ice there. By July 23rd, they were more than 450 miles behind schedule. By September 1st, they decided to pack it in, make one final loop around Herschel Island, just off the northern coast of the Yukon Territory in Canada hope for another whale or two, and head home before they got stuck. But a week later, 
Chilton knew they were too late. The young eye seized around the Belvedere and around two other whalers in the area. The Orca was the first ship to go. Its crew had known it was coming, had heard the hull groan and crack, and they set out on foot, loading everything they could into rowboats they dragged behind them across the snow as they watched their ships snap in two, only to be held there suspended in the ice, just waiting for spring to come and unpause the scene and let the water rush in, and down it would go. And they met up with men fleeing from a ship called the Freeman, itself trapped, pinned between two ice floes, and suspended mid-sinking. And they all made their way, 100-plus shipless sailors, to the Belvedere, where George Fred Tilton was counting its rations and wondering aloud whether they had enough food for its own 49 men. They could break down the Belvedere, make cabins from its planks. The blacksmith could turn its anchor into ovens. But they couldn't eat the crow's nest. They couldn't send an SOS. Couldn't expect to be happened upon by some Coast Guard crew. Summer had snapped into winter. And they were stuck. And they would die. Already, months before, a cutter called the Bear had gotten swept too far north and trapped. Its first mate had shot himself. Its engineer and its fireman and four crewmen went mad. Its blacksmith and seven sailors got trapped on an ice shelf that shattered and sank. So they knew they were sunk, the men of the Belvedere and the Orca and the Freeman. No one knew where they were, so no one was coming for them. Just some cruel fate, frostbite or illness, or madness or accident or starvation lying in wait for them out there in the white. But Tilton had a plan, one that no man had ever attempted, that no man today could ever replicate. Not that anyone would want to. He would walk back from a whaling voyage. Hear him out, he said. Their boat wasn't going anywhere until at least next July, and they'd be lucky if half their party was alive next July. Their best bet was some other boat coming up as far as it could and then getting on the ice with dog sleds and food and supplies and hauling it to them, he said. And this was 1897, and they didn't have radios or the internet or cell service. He didn't say that, but you get it. There was no way to tell anyone where they were and how screwed they were unless Tilton told them in person. And the next morning, though it looked like night there, north of the north of Alaska, George Fred Tilton set out for San Francisco. Across the ice and snow came George Fred, pushed by the swirling wind caught by a sail affixed to a mast, affixed to a sled pulled by nine dogs, thundering across the frozen sea and onto the snow that covered Alaska, day after sunless day, 2,600 miles ahead of him, all alone, just a man and man's best friend, on a mission, against all odds. Well, there were three men, actually. It was George Fred Tilton, a bunch of dogs, and two whole other guys. But I have no idea what their names were because George Fred Tilton never wrote them down. But they were both native Siberian men who'd shipped out with the Orca, who seemed to realize that even if the stranded sailors somehow made it through the winter, no one was going to look out for them. So their best bet for getting home was to try their luck with the crazy man trying to sled his way to San Francisco. And I am pretty much guessing about their motivations here because George Fred didn't write it down. He might not have even asked. Though you'd think he would have had plenty of opportunity out there in the tundra with nothing to do but hold on to his sled and try to survive. 
while on a heart of darkness adventure through months of perpetual darkness. But instead, he barely mentions the other two guys, except to complain that they didn't know how to build a proper igloo. But the two unnamed men were with him, nearly starving again and again, but for times that they stumbled upon A, the hut of a half-crazed ethnographer out collecting artifacts for the Natural History Museum of some eastern city, B, the Norwegian trapper who knew just enough English to tell Tilton that he thought he was crazy, C, the doctor, D, the flock of nearly frozen ducks, woefully off course, E, the schoolmarm, Miss Hannah Holt, in the village near Cape Cruisenstern, and F, the carcass of a bowhead whale, adrift on an ice floe. There were times that they too were adrift on the ice, times they needed to break off an ice shelf and try to push it across open water, times when the dogs, raised to go ever onward, made to go ever onward, tumbled off an unseen cliff's edge only to become tangled in their harnesses as they dangled over the edge, howling into the howling wind, times when dogs ran away in the night, who can blame them? Times when half-starved in the most unforgiving season anyone could remember, they had to steer clear of Inuit villages for fear of what half-starved peoples might do if strangers showed up looking for food. And there were times, countless times and nights in the tundra, where time turned strange, and morning was night and twilight was dawn, when they traveled on and on with the shush of the sled, and the white turned blue in the light of the moon, or green then purple and then green again, as the aurora rippled and whisked and waved all around them, as they raced down from the top of the world. And there was a time Tilton traded the dogs for a leaky boat, and took the leads and the leashes and the straps from the sled, and took his own underwear and, and used them all to patch up the leaks, and then rode 37 miles down the Shelikoff Strait to the island of St. Paul, where he promised a man $7,000 and chartered a schooner to take them to the southern shore of Alaska where another boat would take them to another boat, would take them to another boat, which would take them to a train, to a train, to another train, to Portland, and down to San Francisco, where he arrived exhausted and wild-eyed after a six-and-a-half-month sprint of 3,000 miles at the office of his shipping company and told them to send a rescue boat. And George Fred Tilton saved the day. Or he sort of saved the day. Technically, the day was saved months earlier, because he had made sure that every time he met someone on his journey, he told them where the ships were, in hope that they would find a way to send help. And so there was actually already a rescue mission en route long before he arrived in San Francisco. And so the whole sprinting aspect of his trip was kind of pointless. And also, those ships that were sent months earlier, they took forever to get there. And by the time they arrived, everything was unfrozen, and so the men on the Belvedere were pretty much just chilling and hunting whales and stuff. But not important. George Fred Tilton saved the day. And also those two other guys. But still. George Fred Tilton. Total hero. Overland was produced by Nate DeMeo for his podcast, The Memory Palace. 
you don't have to brave the wind, ice, and chill like Tilton to reach us here at Third Coast, since, hallelujah, technology has made it ridiculously easy to stay in touch. No sled, dogs, or whale blubber required. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been cold before, but this feels different. Warm your toes by the fire, because after the break, it's back to the Arctic landscape. Only this time, the espresso machine is on, and freshly baked bread is about to come out of the oven. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago... If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, audio air conditioning. We're turning down the thermostat and ushering in stories that give us the chills. This was one of the most inhospitable places on Earth. One of the coldest spots in the world is the Arctic, that polar region at the northernmost spot on the Earth. Yet despite the unforgiving landscape, people flock to it to see the stark scenery and hope for a whale or polar bear sighting. Radio producer and naturalist Jennifer Kingsley is quite familiar with the area, having traversed some of it in a canoe. On her last trip, she opted for a larger vessel and set out to record the sounds of her environment. She came back with much more than she could have imagined. This is the story of how I visited two places at once and met a brother along the way. Oh my God, there it goes! Wow. You don't get closer than that. (laughs) You'll never guess where I am. First off, I'm on a boat in a lounge surrounded by sleek and comfy chairs, picture windows, and a bar. This song floats from the speakers in the ceiling. Second, I'm smack in the middle of the Canadian Arctic. Icebergs float by. Seabirds glide over the surface of the ocean. Ice breaks. It's summer in the north, and it's supper time. I check out the rush in the kitchen where plate after plate is artfully prepared and I head out into the dining room. 
I sit down to enjoy dinner with some of the guests on board. It's warm inside. Dinner is delicious. It's always delicious. And I can keep an eye on the ice through the window. It's another day at work for me, but let me back up. I work in the Arctic as a naturalist and guide on this ship. I spend time with the guests who are paying for this trip, and I help them learn about the ecosystems we visit. The ship I'm on takes 140 passengers, and it's really nice. We have comfy beds, fresh-baked bread, an espresso machine, we even have a baby grand piano. There are windows and decks everywhere, so we can watch the world go by. We leave the ship regularly, too. We cruise around in little boats, we hike, we stop and we meet people. Everyone feels the pull of the Arctic, though almost nobody is from the north. With one exception, Kisa. He's a guide too, and he's Inuit. He's an expert hunter. The tundra is home for him. I became a guide on this boat after paddling across the Arctic twice in a canoe. Out in a little boat, the landscape looks much the same, but with fewer people. And it sounds completely different. The tundra all around our ship sounds like this. At least as close as I could get to it with a handheld recorder and a few spare minutes. But when I'm on board, I can't hear it in the same way. The ship is its own small world, floating through a much larger one. On the ship, there's always something in the way of that quiet. On the top deck, which has the most amazing view, it's the radar. On the bridge, we're hushed, but also behind glass. Watching wildlife on board is communal and exciting. This is a close to the not kidding. Look at the, look at the body, look at the markings on the body. And it can get loud. This is as good as it gets, you guys. I'm not kidding. Oh my God, there it goes. That was awesome. Even the sound of the ice is the sound of us, of our ship, crashing into it. We're constantly colliding with the landscape around us. When I spent weeks in a canoe crossing the tundra, I never thought about it. I'd take whatever the day had to offer. Wind, cold, rain, bugs. Some days I longed for one of the luxuries I've gotten used to on this ship, like a piece of fruit or clean sheets. Before getting on this ship, I didn't think much about what I would miss when the tables were turned. I need some kind of link to keep me out there. I lie in my comfy bed at night and wonder what's happening outside. I love how this ship can explore, how safe it is, but I miss the continuity of a completely outdoor experience where you never get a break. I miss relying on all of my senses. We saw two at the start, 
right? Two, two at the start. This is Kisa, the Inuit guide and hunter I told you about. Three over there, that's five. five He's from a small island there. in the territory of seven. Nunavut. And we saw three, seven, eight, nine, one bull, ten. Ten. One, two. And we're sitting together, eight, we're trying to remember the number seven, of caribou we saw eight, that day. Nine, ten, eleven. Yeah, eleven. Yeah. That's good. Eleven tuktu. Tuktu means caribou in his language, Inuktitut. I thought it was thirteen. Kisa has a lot of skills, and he's the best by far at spotting polar bears. When we're on the ship, we want to see polar bears. They are amazing to watch. But when we're on land, they pose a threat. They're hunters, and they're hungry. All of us guides carry rifles, just in case. It might sound strange, but it's standard to be armed up here. Jason, Jason, Bibi, can you please come ashore and bring your gun? There is a polar bear about a mile away. So the groups need to stay tight. Kisa is pointing to a polar bear that he sees ashore here. Kisa always finds the bears first. I think I see it too here. Nope, I don't see it. Kisa doesn't like my microphone, but we spend more and more time together. Others feel uncomfortable with him, I think, because he doesn't talk much. But that's exactly what draws me to him. When we're out on the land, he takes off on his own to scout for bears and look around. I think he needs a little peace and quiet. Kisa and I start hanging out, which means we sit beside each other sometimes. I ask him questions, we drink tea, I work on my Inuktitut. Nanuk, polar bear, Omingmuk, muskox. And one day, a couple of weeks into our journey, Kisa starts the conversation, which is unusual. He tells me that he would like to call me his sister, and I can call him brother. He teaches me how to say this, Anikuluk, my brother. Maybe he says this to all the girls, but I'm touched. When we meet some hunters outside a small community, Kisa calls down from our big boat to their tiny one. You know what I mean? No. I told him you're my sister. Now, when we stop in villages and he meets friends, he introduces me in this way, as his sister. Most people smile or laugh. I'm six feet tall and white. Kisa is much shorter, 20 years older, and Inuk. But I'm happy to do as he asks. Ulakut anikuluk. Good morning, my brother. Later on... We're traveling through heavy sea ice. I am feeling peopled out. I find Kisa in the lounge by the window. I sit beside him. I ask, do you find everyone on this boat really loud? (laughs) Yes, he says. Does it bother you? No. Did it bother you when you first started working here? No. Then we both look out the window with my face against the glass, looking at so much ice, I can really see where we are. Having Kisa there seems to expand the silence, so I can almost hear it too.
the longer we sit, the quieter it gets. We see an endless field of broken ice outside that window. It's white with turquoise pools of water scattered everywhere. As we pass, our ship knocks against the ice. Pieces flip over and water gushes over top of them. Very often the water carries little fish with it. They flail around in the evening air. Gulls do their best to pick them up and eat them. The gulls are the hunters, Nkisa's on their team. Finally, there, he got one, Kisa says. You see, he got one. We sit and watch for a long time. Kisa holds the silence for both of us. There's no hurry. The sun takes hours to set. Arctic Sound, Lost and Found was produced by Jennifer Kingsley for ABC RN's Radiotonic. Here at Third Coast, we pride ourselves on keeping our ear to the ground, listening to everything we possibly can. But curating is not all we do. Third Coast is this show on the air and podcast. We're a conference in an annual competition, a website with a library of almost 2,000 audio stories just waiting for your ears, and we put on public listening events in Chicago and around the country. To learn more or just peruse, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Freezing temperatures send our body into a survival mode. So in case the first part of the show didn't leave you blowing into the palms of your hands and putting on an extra pair of socks, we think this next story will. It's from Outside Magazine's podcast, which at the moment is diving deep into the science of survival. This story is pretty self-explanatory, especially after you hear the title, Frozen Alive. You have one unheard message. First unheard message. Hey, it's me. Just checking in. Want to see if you're coming out to the party tonight. Hot tub is fired up. Uh, dinner's at 8, so um, hope to see you. Give me a call back. If you're going to come out, make sure you're careful. It's really cold out there. So, talk to you soon. Bye. You're as When your Jeep spins lazily off the mountain road and high centers on a snowbank, you don't worry immediately about the cold. Your first thought is that you've just dented your bumper. Your second is that you failed to bring a shovel. Your third is that you'll be late for dinner. You're stuck. As you left town, the thermometer at the gas station read minus 27. But a little cold never hurt anyone with enough fleece and the sense to keep moving. The cold is a fact of life in your mountain town. The price of admission for your favorite sports. Most of the time, cold means fun. You check your watch. 718. You consult your map. 
A thin switch-backing line snakes up the mountain to the penciled square that marks the cabin. It's maybe five or six miles to that penciled square. You run that far every day before breakfast, and you've got cross-country skis on the roof rack. This'll be no problem. Cold slaps your naked face, squeezes tears from your eyes. Breath rolls from you in short, frosted puffs. The jeep lies cocked sideways in the snowbank, like an empty turtle shell. You think of firelight and hot tubs and warm food and wine. There is no precise core temperature at which the human body perishes from cold. Using cold water immersion baths, Nazi doctors calculated death to arrive around 77 degrees Fahrenheit. The lowest recorded core temperature in a surviving adult is 60.8 degrees. For a child, it's lower. In 1994, a two-year-old girl in Saskatchewan wandered out of her house and into a minus 40-degree night. She was found near her doorstep the next morning, her limbs seemingly frozen solid, her core temperature 57 degrees. She lived. But for all that scientists and statisticians have learned about freezing and its physiology, no one can yet predict how quickly and in whom hypothermia will strike, and whether it will kill when it does. The cold does not reveal its motives. The process begins when you remove your gloves to squeeze a loose pin back into one of your ski bindings. The freezing metal bites your flesh. Your skin temperature drops. Within a few seconds, the palms of your hands are a chilly, painful 60 degrees. As the web of surface capillaries on your hands constrict, blood courses away from your skin and deeper into your torso. Your body is allowing your fingers to chill in order to keep its vital organs warm. If you were a Norwegian fisherman or an Inuit hunter, both of whom frequently work gloveless in the cold, your chilled hands would open their surface capillaries periodically to allow surges of warm blood to pass into them and maintain their flexibility. This phenomenon, known as the hunter's response, can elevate a 35 degree skin temperature to 50 degrees within seven or eight minutes. Other human adaptations to the cold are more mysterious. Tibetan Buddhist monks can raise the temperature of their hands and feet by 15 degrees through meditation. Australian Aborigines, who once slept on the ground, unclothed on near freezing nights, would slip into a light hypothermic state, suppressing shivering until the rising sun rewarmed them. You have no such defenses just an athlete's tendency to sweat. Only after about 10 minutes of hard climbing 
As your body temperature rises, does blood start seeping back into your fingers? Sweat soaks your chest and trickles down your spine. You check your map. You're below a switchback. You decide it would be faster to cut up the hillside instead of following the road. But after an hour, there's still no sign of the switchback, and you've begun to worry. At this moment, your core temperature reaches its high, 100.8. Climbing in deep snow, you've generated nearly 10 times as much body heat as you do when you are resting. And then... The loose pin has disappeared from your binding. You lift your foot, and your ski falls from your boot. Stopping to search, your own body heat starts to work against you. Your capillaries, dilated by exercise, carry heat from your core out to your skin, and your wet clothing dispels it rapidly into the night. The lack of insulating fat over your muscles allows the cold to creep that much closer to your warm blood. Your temperature begins to plummet. Within 17 minutes, it reaches the normal 98.6. Then it slips below. At 97 degrees, hunched over in your slow search, the muscles along your neck and shoulders tighten in what's known as pre-shivering muscle tone. The temperature control center in your hypothalamus has ordered the web of surface capillaries in your skin to constrict. Your hands and feet begin to ache with cold. Ignoring the pain, you dig carefully through the snow. Another 10 minutes pass. You've been cold before, but this feels different. Without the pin, you know you're in deep trouble. But then, you feel your finger brush past it in the snow. You even manage to pop it back into its socket and clamp your boot into the binding. But the clammy chill that started around your skin has now wrapped deep into your body's core. At 95 degrees, you've entered the zone of mild hypothermia. You're now trembling violently as your body attains its maximum shivering response. You're too cold to think of the beautiful night. You think only of the warm jeep that waits for you somewhere at the bottom of the hill. You fumble out the map. You consulted it to get here. It should be able to guide you back to the warm car. It doesn't occur to you in your increasingly clouded and panicky mental state that you could simply follow your tracks down the way you came. By the time you push off downhill, your muscles have cooled and tightened so dramatically that they no longer contract easily. And once contracted, they won't relax. 
You're locked into an ungainly, spread-armed, weak-kneed snowplow. Moments later, your skis catch on a buried log. The crash leaves your ankle burning in a way you know is bad. You've also lost your hat and a glove. Scratchy snow is packed down your shirt. Meltwater trickles down your neck and spine, joined soon by a thin line of blood from a small cut on your head. Your heat begins to drain away, and you're becoming too weary to feel any urgency. You decide to have a short rest. An hour passes. You barely notice. At one point, a stray thought says you should start being scared. But fear is a concept that floats somewhere beyond your immediate reach, like that numb hand lying naked in the snow. You've slid into the temperature range at which cold renders the enzymes in your brain less efficient. With every one degree drop in body temperature below 95, your cerebral metabolic rate falls off by 3 to 5%. When your core temperature reaches 93, amnesia nibbles at your consciousness. You'll remember little of what happens next. In the minus 35 degree air, your core temperature falls about one degree every 30 to 40 minutes. Apathy at 91 degrees. Stupor at 90. You've now crossed the boundary into profound hypothermia. By the time your core temperature has fallen to 88 degrees, your body has abandoned the urge to warm itself by shivering. Your blood is thickening. Your oxygen consumption has fallen by more than a quarter. Your kidneys, however, work overtime to process the fluid overload that occurred when the blood vessels in your extremities constricted and squeezed fluids towards your center. You feel a powerful urge to urinate. It's the only thing you feel at all. By 87 degrees, you've lost the ability to recognize a familiar face, should one suddenly appear from the woods. At 86 degrees, your heart becomes arrhythmic as chilled nerve tissues hamper its electrical impulses. It now pumps less than two-thirds the normal amount of blood. Meanwhile, the lack of oxygen and the slowing metabolism of your brain begin to trigger trigger auditory hallucinations. Be careful, it's cold out there. <laughs> as, as cold as I 
attempting to stand, you collapse in a tangle of skis and poles. That's okay. You can crawl. The Jeep, it's so close. Except hours later, or maybe it's minutes, you realize it's nowhere to be found. You've crawled only a few feet. When your core temperature reaches 85 degrees, you feel the intense need to tear off your clothes. Though researchers are uncertain of the cause, the most logical explanation is that shortly before loss of consciousness, the constricted blood vessels near the body's surface suddenly dilate and produce a sensation of extreme heat against the skin. All you know is that you're burning. But then, in a final moment of clarity, you realize you're lying alone in the bitter cold, naked from the waist up. You grasp your terrible misunderstanding, a whole series of misunderstandings, like a dream ratcheting into wrongness. Be careful, it's cold out there. <laughs> You've shed your clothes, your car, your house in town with its furnace all the layers that keep you warm. Hope you can make it. There's an adage about hypothermia. You aren't dead until you're warm and dead. In fact, cold can offer a perverse salvation. Cold slows down bacterial growth and chemical reactions. In the human body, it shuts down metabolism. The lungs take in less oxygen. The heart pumps less blood. At normal temperatures, this would produce brain damage. But the chilled brain, having slowed its own metabolism, needs far less oxygen-rich blood and can under the right circumstances, survive intact. You are lucky. Your friends, worried at your absence, came looking. Your rescuers quickly wrap your naked torso with a spare parka, your hands with mittens, your entire body with a bivy sack. At the hospital, your stiff, curled form is slid onto a table fitted with a mattress filled with warm water which will be regularly reheated. Your heart is beating at only 24 beats per minute. Your temperature is 79.2 degrees. These numbers are near unheard of and you are in danger of dying from being saved. In rewarming shock, the constricted capillaries reopen almost all at once, causing a sudden drop in blood pressure. The slightest movement can send a victim's heart muscle into wild spasms of ventricular fibrillation. In 1980, 16 shipwrecked Danish fishermen were hauled to safety after an hour and a half in the frigid North Sea. They then walked across the deck of the rescue ship, stepped below for a hot drink, 
and drop dead, all 16 of them. Your temperature continues to drop, 78.9. You're now experiencing afterdrop, in which residual cold, close to the body's surface, continues to cool the core even after the victim is removed from the outdoors. Elevating the core temperature of an average size male one degree requires adding about 60 kilocalories of heat. You would need to consume 40 quarts of chicken broth to push your core temperature up to normal. The doctor slides a large catheter into an incision in your abdominal cavity. Warm fluid begins to flow from a suspended bag, washing through your abdomen and draining out through another catheter. The solution warms the internal organs. The warm blood in the organs is then pumped by your heart throughout the body, like a car radiator in reverse. Your stiff limbs begin to unclench, as if death is slowly losing its hold on you. For another hour, nurses and EMTs hover around the edges of the table where you lie centered in a warm pool of light. Fluid lost through sweat and urination has reduced your blood volume. But every 15 or 20 minutes, your temperature rises another degree. 85.3 Frostbite could still cost you fingers or an earlobe, but you appear to have beaten back the worst of the cold. 90.4 92.2 From somewhere far away in the immense, cold darkness, you hear a faint, insistent hum. Quickly, it mushrooms into a ball of sound like a planet rushing toward you. You sense heat and light playing against your eyelids, but beneath their warm dance, a deep chill continues to pull. You force open your eyes, lights glare overhead, faces hover atop uniformed bodies. You try to think, who are these people? Hypothermia. Not if you can understand me. You try to nod. Your neck muscles feel rusted shut, unused for years. They respond to your command with only a slight twitch. All you can feel is throbbing discomfort everywhere. Glancing down to your frostbitten hands, you notice blisters filled with clear fluid dotting your fingers, once gloveless in the snow. During the long, cold hours, the tissue froze and ice crystals formed in the tiny spaces between your cells, sucking water from them, blocking the blood supply. You stare at them absently. If the damage is superficial, the blisters will break in a week or so and the tissue will revive. If not, you know that your fingers will eventually turn black, bloodless, and dead and then they will be amputated. Hours later, still sluggish and numb, you surface again as if from deep underwater, 
a warm tide seems to be flooding your midsection. Focusing your eyes with difficulty, you see tubes running into you, their heat mingling with your abdomen's depthless cold like a churned-up river. Someone speaks. Hi. Your eyes move from bright lights to shadowy forms in the dim outer reaches of the room. You recognize the voice. You're, you're back. It's one of the friends you set out to visit so long ago now. I didn't know if we'd lost you. You lurch as if to sob, but you can't make a sound. So you're left with the thought. Heat is tiny. Just a lit match in the night. It's the cold that is huge. Too big to see from up close. But you went so far away. You thought you knew the cold. Now you really do. It's breath. It's touch. It's voice. And deep inside, you shudder at the sound. Frozen Alive was produced by Peter Frick Wright and Robbie Carver for the series The Science of Survival from the Outside Podcast. Just a note before we go, all the music you heard in today's show was played on instruments made of ice. Ice Music is a project of Terhe Isangset and Ice Music Records, an independent Norwegian record company founded in 2005. For a link to a video of an ice music performance, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.